Um, and again, like I said, I'm going to read out of somebody else's Bible um, for, the, for the sermon today. So if you want to turn with me to Matthew 13, 31. Okay. So Matthew 13, 31 through 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. I think that's it. Did I do it? I did it. Ian, where are you? Okay. <laughs> cool. You might want to read that again. I don't know. I didn't. She thinks I know how to read. Oh, good morning, everybody. Hey, Dora Hope. My name is Ian. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know who I am, I'm one of the teaching preachers here. Um, now, before we get into Matthew 13, I, I don't think that it's a social faux pas for me to pause and interject real quick that we need to get loud for the moms, yeah? Give it up. Happy Mother's Day. Moms, thank you. Second to the gospel, moms are the greatest gift on the planet. And I have to, I have to put mine on blast and tell a very quick story. I, I, did, I did warn her that I was going to do this. I even left myself a note so I wouldn't forget. When I was a kid, I was a hellion. And I grew up skateboarding in Southeast, and I had a, I was, I went to a, 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 a it was called Skate Church, but it's not the Skate Church that we uh, are partnered with here. It was, it was a much smaller one, a different one. And when I was there one night, somebody stole my skateboard. I was probably 13 or 14 years old, and I had a posse, so I was like, boys, find out who stole my skateboard. And so we, we hit the streets, and we actually found out who stole it. And so, because I was such a hellion, I was like, mom. Can you drive me to 114th and San Rafael? It was 144th and San Rafael, and, so, and she did. My mom and my dad, we drove up to this guy's street. I knew where he lived. I knew who he was. And sure as shooting, we pull up onto his street, and he's, there he is right on, right on the sidewalk skateboarding. And so my dad pulled our van over, and I opened up the side door to get out of the van to go confront this guy. And I walked around the back side of the van, and my mom was already in his face. I didn't realize it until my mom was standing next to him. But this dude, it was like if my mom got in Sam Dixon's face. Like this dude was six foot three, big old shoulders, and my mom had my skateboard in her hand and was pointing up at him, giving him what for. And she, mar and my, my dad and I both were just like, sick, All right, you know. <laughs> Mama bear, I got my skateboard back and that guy never, ever, ever messed with me ever again. So. That is a mild warning to every one of you. She is here today. I love you, Mom. Thank you. Uh, so, yes. So Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. What a bamboozle. Um, I'm also going to say one more thing, because several of you have brought it up. You've asked me if, if the, the sermon that's being preached in the morning is the same sermon that's being preached in the evening, 
And that is a hard no. I'm going to do my best to not ever, ever do that because um, the more word, the better. And a lot of people that come to the evening service come to the morning service. And so hearing the same sermon twice in one day is not the worst thing in the world. It's, you know, it's, it's not a cavity or anything like that. But uh, we will continue to be going through the Gospel of John in the evening service and the parables in the morning. So come to the evening service, 6 p.m. It rocks. We're going through the Upper Room Discourse, and there is so much good stuff in the Upper Room Discourse. You guys got to come. So with that, let's hop into this. Um, let, me, let me just mellow things out with a quick word of prayer. Just join me with me real quick. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for your love that is specifically manifested in the beautiful responsibility of motherhood. What a gift. Um, thank you for moms. Thank you so much for moms. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your peace. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time and for this place, for this building that we can come together and, and, and hear from you as a congregation and as a community. And I pray especially today, Lord, that my mouth would just be put off to the side and that we would hear nothing but what is actually in your word. Your people are here, ready to listen. Lord, we are waiting for you to speak. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, without further ado, this parable uh, is a lot of fun. There's a lot to it. The parable of the mustard seed, very famous, very well known. Uh, So well known, in fact, that I actually had spent my whole adult life assuming that I had it pegged because it doesn't seem like there's all that much to it, right? It seems pretty basic. The kingdom of God is like something that starts very small and then gets very big. And as it gets big, other creatures are able to benefit from the bounty of the mustard plant. And I thought, that's, that's so simple. Like, what's next? Turn the page. Go on to the next one. And uh, boy, I couldn't... Um, I couldn't be more wrong. It's, this parable has really reminded me of human complexity. You know, it's, it's, being a human is very different for all of us. You know, we have so much in common, but we have different backgrounds. We have different convictions. We, have, we come from maybe different religions, different faith assumptions, different upbringings, different cultures in different parts of the world. And what's so cool about this parable is that it, it, it seems so simple, but it's so deep. And it needs to be because people are very complicated. And it doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter your age, your vocation, your socioeconomic state, none of that matters. The word of God here, specifically in these three verses, penetrates to the heart of every human being. And that just speaks to the brilliance of our Jesus, which is another thing that I was reminded of, how Jesus just, just a few sentences here, not much, and the depth here is eternal. There is a surface level takeaway. You could, you could easily get something from these few sentences, but then you could spend your entire life and all the way into eternity pursuing what Jesus is saying here. And so I got smacked upside the head with this parable because I assumed that I had it. I assumed that I got it. And so the way that I'm going to try to preach this today is, is I think, three different sections. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what, what, I, what I thought, like the easy takeaway is, and then I'm going to tell you how I got tuned up and corrected and what everybody else was telling me it meant, and then I'm going to tell you what I think the Bible actually says and how the other two things, my assumptions and other assumptions, are, are not incorrect but insufficient to actually get to the point. And so the way that I interpreted this, this parable for the longest time was basically you could sum it up with the word responsibility. And part of the definition dictionary definition of the word responsibility is a moral obligation to behave correctly 
toward or in respect of a certain thing. And so my idea of the mustard seed was it's, it's you becoming a, a bounty. You as a personal individual, as a member of the church, as just someone in society, in, in your greater community, be somebody that other people can depend on. Be responsible with what you have. And the, the opposite of this would be, the, I, I've, I don't think anyone would argue with me about this, but I'm gonna make a blanket statement. I don't think there's a culture on planet Earth. I don't think that there is a group of people in, on any part of the entire world that praise and approve of someone who is just outwardly, intentionally lazy. And I'm not talking about people who are infirmed or, or ill or have something that, that is preventing them from, from being active at work and, and, and able to make money and provide. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, I'll just, I'll just put me on, on the chopping block. I have a sound mind for the most part. I've got a, I've got a, a physical body. I can carry a load. I'm, I'm, there's nothing hindering me. But nobody would think it was cool if I just went home and, and Angie was the one that went to work and made the money and cleaned the dishes and prepped the food and did the shopping and did the scrubbing and the cleaning and, and scraped the moss out of the gutters and off the roof shingles and I just laid around all day because I could. There is not a culture on planet Earth that thinks that that's okay. And so the opposite of that was how I figured the mustard seed was to play out in everyday life. There's an eternal element to it, there's a spiritual element to it, but as far as the day-to-day -day application goes, be somebody who doesn't drag on other people. Be somebody who can not only take care of yourself, but has such a bounty that it overflows and benefits others. We, we start very small. We start as infants, helpless infants. Now, I think the only thing an infant can do for itself is breathe. Everything else is done for that infant. But as, as children grow in ability, they grow in responsibility. They have, to, they have to play a part. They have to be a contributing member of the family, the community, society. And that's a good thing. We should shoot for that. And I, I, I think that I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful thing, and so it made sense to me. Like, well, here's, here's an easy takeaway. It's a very simple idea. As you grow older and you gain education and wisdom and insight and your body grows and you get stronger, go to work, make money. Be somebody who not only can take care of yourself so that you're not draining somebody else, but be someone, strive to be someone who is so well able and, and smart and, and industrious and skilled that your skill set, your ability abounds over and you can let someone else borrow 500 bucks. You, could, you can give somebody a ride. You can teach somebody a second language. You can't do any of that unless you first have those skill sets and ability and, and all the rest. And that seemed pretty simple to me. And I, and I took that as an inspiration. I want to be somebody who's, who is responsible for myself. I'm not dragging on somebody else's billfold, and I'm not bothering somebody else with anything. I, I can take care of my own. And then you need, you need, you need 50 bucks? You need, a, you need a grocery bag full of food? Absolutely, I can do that. The birds are nesting in your branches, so to speak. You, are, you have such a bounty that you can help other people find respite and rest all about that and it made sense because that's the story of Jesus and this is how I thought of it. this is how I backed it up this was this was my take Jesus was was born 
humble. He came to earth in the most humble of circumstances. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, these teeny tiny, not important little towns. And, and then especially under the shadow of Jerusalem and under the shadow of the Roman Empire, these, these big, great places. And Jesus was not born there. He wasn't born in some palace or castle. He was not the son of some politician or official or king or, or anything like that. He was, he was born, his first bed was the feeding trough for a donkey in little tiny Bethlehem. And he was raised in Nazareth, another, another nondescript place that nobody would have ever paid any attention to at all. Tiny, tiny little place Nazareth was. And then he just grew up to be a commoner. He was just a knuckle buster. He was a carpenter. He grew up to just be a normal guy. He didn't ever travel very far. He never wrote anything. It was noted in the Gospels that by, by men's opinion, by men's the, the societal norms, Jesus was uneducated. In John 7, he's teaching in the temple, and people come up, and they're like, where did this guy learn this stuff? He never went to any of the schools. Him and Gamaliel have never even met. How is this going on? And even, in, even whenever he was, when he was riling up his very first followers, the disciples, you remember in John chapter one, Nathan hears tell of this Jesus of Nazareth that he's the Messiah, and he goes, wait, verbatim, he says, can anything good even come from Nazareth? Humble, small, not a Roman elite, not a politician, not the son of somebody great, but a meek and mild boy who was born and raised in a small, quiet, out-of-the-way place. His public ministry was only three years long. He died younger than I am now. He was, he was murdered on a cross at, at about 32, 33 years old after a three-year public ministry. The majority of the people that he preached to and, the, and that his ministry reached rejected him. He was largely kicked out of town, rejected, threatened to be killed. People spread rumors about him. And then the people that did follow him, that inner, the inner 12 guys, one of them, Jesus says, is a devil, Judas, so he, we're not even going to have to mention him, but the rest of them that followed him all the way to the very end, when they got there, they bailed on him. Even the people that were hard after him ended up abandoning him at the last moment. This doesn't sound like somebody that we should necessarily be enthralled with. He came that humble. He came that weak and that quietly. That, with that much humility, he came didn't put out a smoldering wick, the Bible says about him. He came as, as small and quietly as somebody possibly could, and yet he is God in the flesh who came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to defeat death and to defeat sin and to save us from the ramifications of those things, to save us from our sin, to save us from damnation, to save us from eternal separation from God. This, this babe of Bethlehem born in humble circumstances is the entire God of the universe who came to save. And so this, this positive interpretation, this, there's, there's a positive interpretation of the, of the mustard seed and it's that it's that the, the mustard seed is good. It's this, it's this beautiful image of something that starts small and it grows to abound. It's so abound that other creatures are able to take rest in its shade and in its branches. It's a good thing. Isn't that what our Jesus is like? And, I was, and so I was like, done. That's it. Sermon's going to be over. I'm going to have a hard time even getting 20 minutes out of this thing. I like to do it for 45, so what am I going to do about this? But then I cracked into the books, and I started talking to some other people about it. And people very quickly, face-to-face -face conversations, were like, no, you got that all wrong. I was like, bummer. Um, 
Okay, you know, but I'm all ears, you know. Sure, okay, so I got it wrong. Uh, and, and so I, I love this. There, there was people that I actually had conversations about with, or uh, that I had conversations with about this, and then I, I read a lot of dead guys that said the same thing. And they were like, they were like Ian, bro, you got to back up a little bit. And you guys know that I love this. I, I say this a lot. The, the text of the Bible, you got to get into what it's saying. If you're going to do the parable of the mustard seed, verses 31 and 32, you got to pay attention to verses 31 and 32. Dissect it. Devour it. Meditate on this. And something else that informs those specific texts is the greater context of what's happening around the text. And so a lot of people, dead and otherwise, said, Ian, back up a little bit. Look at what's happening. And so I started reading. There were some commentators that, that said, hey, if you're going to be looking at, at, at chapter 13, the, the first four parables of chapter 13, you've got to come first. You've got to come through chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12. And when you do, you'll see that chapter 13 has a different light cast on it. And so I took it hook, line, and sinker, and I ran with it. And, I, and I, as I was reading, I was like, man, you know what? I could be completely wrong about this parable. I have this very positive interpretation of what Jesus is teaching here with this mustard seed, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong because in Matthew's gospel, chapters 11 and 12 is the, is the first mention of, of doubt and of rejection of the person of Jesus. You'll remember in chapter 11, uh, John the Baptist is in prison. John the Baptist was Jesus' biological cousin on his mother's side. They had grown up together. John the Baptist was the one who was prophesied hundreds of years earlier that he would be the voice, the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. This is John the Baptist. He is the one that Jesus said, of, of men who are born of women, there has been none greater than John the Baptist. He was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets and he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And in John chapter one, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming around the bend and points his finger at him and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There he is. And then later in his life, not too much later, he's in prison. Probably thinking to himself, this is not going according to plan. And so he sends disciples of his to Jesus and asks him, are you the one that is to come or should we look for somebody else? That's Matthew chapter 11. If John the Baptist is able to go, hmm, maybe I was wrong about this Jesus guy, then all of us need to be aware of that. So there's this first mention, there's some doubt. It's the first time in Matthew's gospel where there's this there's this like, whoa moment, what's going on here? And then the story goes on. Jesus in chapter 12 heals a man who is demon-possessed. And the religious leaders are aware of it. They do not deny it. They agree that it happened. They're completely aware that this is going on. But they do not bow the knee. They do not understand who Jesus is. Instead, they make an excuse and they actually accuse Jesus of, of casting out demons by the power of demons. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. How does Jesus get his power? Because he's demonic. So now there's, there's doubt in chapter 11. There's outright heresy in chapter 12. There's a, very, there's a very stark line drawn in the sand. We believe this about Jesus and it's not good. We reject him. And this is what's building now in Jesus's ministry. And we know from this, the, 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 the pages of, of scripture that this would build up more and more and more and it would lead to Jesus being put on the cross. But in Matthew's account, this is where it begins. So we have doubt. 
we have heresy. And then chapter 13 launches off with four parables. The first two of which you go, that's not like, that's not great. There's, there's doubt and there's heresies in, in chapter 12. And so in chapter 13, there's these four parables that launch off that are full of rejection and failure and confusion. The four soils, seed cast on all four, but only one third or only one fourth, one quarter of that actually produces fruit. What's up with that? And then you have the parable of the wheat and the tares. It's like, well, maybe at best you got 50-50 there. Some of, some of the wheat is, is legit. A bunch of it in there is, is tares. We're just gonna gotta let it be what it is. There's, the church is gonna be full. The kingdom of God on earth is gonna be full of, of tares and true wheat, true fruit and false. And then we have the mustard and the leaven. And so people say, given the light that is shed by chapters 11 and 12, this has to be a negative interpretation. This cannot be positively defined. There's no way. John the Baptist is doubting. Jesus is called the prince of demons or that he's in cahoots with the prince of demons. And so what are these other two parables? And people say, people say listen, listen just, look, just listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying that there's a mustard seed that grows, it's, just, it's small, and there's a whole debate about mustard seed's not the smallest, and I'm just going to let that one go. I'm just, we don't have time. It's, it's not important. Jesus is making a point. It's, it's the smallest of the seeds that, were, that people were familiar with at that time, and it grows into this bush, this tree-like thing, and it gets so big that birds are able to rest in the branches, and people are like, you don't want a mustard plant to be that big. That's a bad thing. What Jesus is saying here to anyone who knows anything about mustard plants is that Jesus is drawing a picture here that people immediately would have gone, there's something wrong with that plant. <laughs> that plant's not good. If your, plant, if your mustard plant is big enough to hold the weight of birds, it's too big. You need to cut that thing back. It's grown to the point that it's kind of useless. And this is, this is true with gardens and vegetables, is it not? My wife and I plant a garden every year. And cucumbers, man, it's like, on Tuesday, they're this big. On Thursday, they're that big. And it's just, you got to keep your eye on those things. When they're this big, they're delicious. But you all know, anybody who's grown these things, if a cucumber gets to be this big, it's like, well, that's a big old cucumber right on. But you chop into that thing, the only way to eat it is with copious amounts of salt and butter because that makes everything good. A cucumber that big, it's like, wow, what an impressive cucumber. But it tastes like cardboard. It's not tight. And the same idea is here with this mustard plant. It's like, this is too big. You shouldn't have birds in your mustard plant. So, so Jesus is actually saying that there's something wrong here. The church is, is growing in a way, the kingdom of God is growing in a way that, it's, that it's, it's becoming deformed. It's getting distorted. It's growing too much. And it's growing wrongly. And so we know Constantine in 313 AD made Christianity the religion of Rome which was great for persecution because Christians weren't getting their heads cut off anymore, but the church also then became easy and convenient to be a part of, which brought in all sorts of weird stuff, all sorts of, all sorts of weird practices, weird ideas, weird teachings, all these distorted views of who Jesus is. And these are the birds that rest in the branches of this church that is growing wrongly. It, it might be growing, but it's only growing numerically. It's only growing because it's easy. It's only growing because now, actually, it's kind of become lucrative. It's become monetarily advantageous to be a part of the church. We got pastors rolling in, pastors rolling in $5 million a year. Sick. 
It beats turning a wrench for the rest of my life, so I might as well start doing that. And so with that comes this, this, the birds of, of arrogance and pride and jealousy and selfishness and the, the desire for money and for power and people pursue the pulpit because it is for some reason advantageous to them to be in the pulpit. It has nothing to do with Christ or his work, his gospel. And so you can, you can see what people are getting at here. I, I, I was reading this and I was like, this does make sense. The, the church is growing only numerically. It's teaching all sorts of weird ideologies, throwing on the name of Jesus and calling it theology. And it's selling millions of books a year. Pastors are buying yachts, four-wheelers, and Harley-Davidson's. It's a get-rich-quick get scheme, man. I bought my Harley before I was a pastor, I swear. <clears throat> So what is going on here? And to boot, I mean, come on, we gotta stay real with the metaphors. These birds are in the mustard plant, they shouldn't be there, and the birds in verse 19 were evil. The parable of the sower, the seed that landed on the path, Jesus says that the birds came up and they ate that off. They ate the seeds off the path. But then he, he, he clarifies, he says in verse 19, that this is the evil one who comes, who comes along and snatches away what has been sown. So if in verse 19 the birds are evil, then here in, in verse 31 and 32 the birds have to be evil. We have to keep it consistent. And I was like, fair enough. I'm not, far be it for me to take scripture and, and twist on it to make it fit what I expect or what I hope. If the birds are evil in verse 19, then I guess they're evil in verses 31 and 32. Okay, the birds of arrogance, the birds of pride, false teaching, teachers who come in, they're antithetical to the gospel, they're antithetical to Jesus. And I mean, we, we have seen this. This isn't too far-fetched. We've seen this all over the place. My favorite pastor of all time got caught and fired in an eight-year affair. That set me straight. Does this not happen? I mean, it's a very sobering reality. It's not funny. And so I took, a, I took another look at this. I was like, man, this is... Maybe this, maybe this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying the kingdom will go forth, but there will be distortion. There will be persecution. There will be, there will be manipulation. There will be people who are in church work that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Beware of that. There are people out there who are wearing the garb, who have the phylacteries on their forehead. They point at Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and say he is a demon. And now Jesus is painting a picture with this mustard plant. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Jesus warned these people. In, in Matthew 23, go home and read Matthew 23 and think about it. Jesus lays down woe after woe after woe. You who are these religious leaders, these authorities, Pharisees, Sadducees, woe to you. You're whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You do everything for the praise of men. You do everything for the praise of society. You do everything because you want to look good. You do everything because you want to be admired. And do we not see that in the church today? It's a terrifying reality. And so this is sort of the, this is the fence. And on one side of it is this very positive interpretation. The kingdom is, the kingdom is represented by this mustard plant and it's good. It starts small, it gets big, other creatures benefit from its bounty. Praise God. They hit the ball onto the other side and they say, no, it's negative. The church grows in ways that it shouldn't. Things are taught that, should, that ought not be. And people are in, in, in there wearing collars and, and, uh, and everything else because they're just trying to look the part. And, and I considered this and 
so I got away from the I got away from the the commentators. I got away, and that's the thing is there's guys with PhDs and 80 years in ministry that say it's a positive interpretation. There's guys with PhDs and 80 years in the ministry that say it's a negative interpretation. So I got away from the commentaries, and I got I just got back to to the scripture and thought what. Who is Jesus? What did he do? What is he like? What does he say? What does he accomplish? And so where I've landed on this, and there's, there, are, there, are people that, there are people that teach this, I think that the, the bifurcated positive-negative interpretation, I think, that's too, I think it's too simple. I don't, think that's, I don't think that's quite right. I don't think it's the right way of looking at it. I think that I would say that what this teaches us is something that is, that is inconvenient, but very necessary. I think that what Jesus is teaching us here is, is hard. I think it's a hard truth. I think it's a hard reality. It's difficult, but it's tremendously good. It's good news. I mean, he does say the kingdom is like. He doesn't say something happens to the kingdom and then it's like. He says the kingdom itself, he says the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like. We're talking about the kingdom of God here. So I will readily admit, I will grant that the mustard seed is kind of a weird idea when you think about it. I'm gonna land, I'm gonna land somewhere in the middle on this. I think that there's truths from both sides of the fence and that when they're brought together, they actually teach us about what Jesus is saying and what Jesus does, and that is so often the case. Is it a yes or is it a no? No, or yes, it's both. This happens all the time, because we're talking about the kingdom of God. We're talking about something that is beyond our intellect here. So Jesus says a mustard seed, and yes, there are people in the crowd that may have snickered when he said that, because after all, anyone who's familiar with the Old Testament, anybody from that day who would have been listening to Jesus teach, and when the words out of, came out of his mouth, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, there, there must have been some people that are like, wow, wow, a mustard seed? that grows into a mustard plant. The biggest mustard plant in the world is still not that cool. Because after all, in Daniel chapter four, Babylon, which was Israel's enemy, Babylon took Israel, the southern kingdom, into captivity. The Israelites knew who Babylon was. They knew Daniel four. Daniel, in Daniel chapter four, interprets a dream for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon at the time. King of Babylon while Israel was in captivity. And what Daniel interprets, he's, he's interpreting a dream for the king, and in the, in the king's dream, there's this tree, there's this giant tree. And Daniel says, you are this tree. This, it's, a, it's a tree that, <clears throat> excuse me, reaches up into the heavens and can be seen from every end of the whole earth. So Babylon is pictured, Babylon, Israel's enemy, is pictured as this big, strong, robust tall tree that reaches into the, into the heavens. In Ezekiel 31, another enemy of, of Israel, Assyria. Ezekiel 31 says that, that Assyria is a cedar of Lebanon. Big, giant cedar of Lebanon. I mean, talk about a bounty. Talk about productivity. Talk about something that can give back. Now, you could cut down a cedar of Lebanon and build 15 homes. And the 15 families in those 15 homes could plants another 10,000 cedars of Lebanon. That's, a, that's perfect right there. Talk about something that functions for the benefit of others. Talk about resting in somebody's branches. A cedar of Lebanon. But the kingdom of God is like a mustard plant. So I will give, yeah, I, I'm sure that there are some people there that were like, that's a weird comparison. But Jesus goes on. The mustard plant 
was not typically something that you would put in a garden because it would be unruly. It, it, it's a plant that grows, and it's, it's almost like our modern-day um, rose bushes. Produces fruit, but they're also a pain in the neck, are they not? Anyone who has those in their backyard knows what I'm talking about. They have a sweet fruit, but man, they are a trial, and they, they require a lot of work. It's not something that you would necessarily put in a garden, which Jesus says this is a garden plant. And why would you put this in a garden? I think this is all, all what Jesus is, part of what Jesus is saying here. The mustard plant would get big and unruly, and it would upset, it would upset the organized garden, and I think that's exactly the point. That is exactly what a mustard plant would do. That's exactly what, what a briar patch would do. Angie and I, like I said, we, we plant a garden every year, and there's, there's a system to it. The seeds go a certain depth. They're a certain few inches apart. The rows are a certain distance apart, 18 inches, two feet, depend, so that the roots can do their thing. I mean, a, there's, a, there's an organized, intentional design to how a garden is planted. It's absolutely true. And so it doesn't make any sense that you would put a mustard plant in the middle of that organized arena. And I think that that's the point. I think this is what Jesus is saying. Yeah, that, that mustard plant is good. It will grow big, far bigger than that seed of it that we, you would ever imagine. And birds will come and nest. And I think that the birds are good. But what is it doing in a garden? It's, it's, it's kind of invasive and messing things up. Is that not exactly what Jesus does? Is that not exactly what he did? The image of the birds resting in the branches, that's good. But anybody here who is walking with the Lord knows that it's not just that easy. You don't get saved and then just lay your head back in the branches of his grace and go, okay, everything's cool now. My life is fine. It is true your life is fine, but are we still not in daily trial, daily turmoil? This world is still not our home. And millions of different trials and tribulations and temptations will come our way. That's not to mention the fact that Jesus himself, God the Holy Spirit alive inside of you, what is he doing? Is he messing up the order of things? He does. He redesigns your design, doesn't he? You know it's true. And I think this is part of what Jesus has in mind here. And did Jesus not do this when he was here on earth? The Son of God come to seek and to save. Never sinned in word, thought, or deed. His kingdom came to earth. His birth was the arrival of him on the scene. And he made so many people mad. He broke the rules. He broke the Sabbath rule. He broke cleanliness laws. He broke social norms. He was a, a Jewish male rabbi who was caught talking to women, women that had bad reputations. He was seen multiple times hanging out with Samaritans. And the religious elite, the people with the cloak and the phylacteries were like, heretic, liar, buffoon, fraud. Jesus Christ came to earth in love in sacrifice and service for the good of the entire planet and the people who had a predetermined idea of what the rose should be like hated him. Even his disciples in John chapter four are like, whoa, 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 is he talking to a woman? He is, a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritan, we've talked about this a lot, the Samaritans and the Jews were not friends, they were enemies. And Jesus comes in by breaking down racial and, and, and political divides and, and social divides, tearing down walls that ought not be there, it upset people. It upset the garden, if you will. I do not mean this as a pejorative. I mean this as very much a positive, but the kingdom of God came in the person of Jesus Christ and he kind of messed things up. 
Because when our kingdom, when the kingdom of man comes against the kingdom of God, our error is brought to light. And Jesus Christ revealed that error every place that he went because he is perfect. Did it mess things up? Yes. But it messed things up that should have been messed up. The kingdom of God is like this little seed that grows up. And it's, it, you kind of think of it like it's, it's that, that plant is not in a place where it necessarily should be. But it's doing good things. There's a bounty. There's a benefit. All of the creatures are able to make their nests in the branches of this plant. I think that it's a positive interpretation, but I don't think that it's as easy as just that. And anyone who is walking with the Lord knows that he, the Lord, you are born again. You become a new creation. The old thing has passed away. The new has come. And Jesus and his kingdom inside of you, just, just individually for a minute, the church at large will get there, but just individually, does Jesus not get inside of you and through the power of his Holy Spirit rearrange everything that you thought, every, rearrange everything that you felt? I am a, I am a, I love drugs and alcohol and violence and promiscuity and Jesus saved me and he changed all of that. The things that I used to love and intentionally seek out I now see as, as grotesque sins that offend my God and I don't want to engage in them. I want to please Jesus. I want to be like him. I came into contact with him and I had to change. And by his grace and his patience I have to a great degree. There are some who say they, they reject the positive interpretation of this because their, their conclusion is that the world will become perfect morally before Jesus comes back. That's not what Jesus is saying here. We will never be at home in this world. This world will always be messed up. Jesus will come back and set everything right, but until then, this will be a fight. This will be a struggle. Following Jesus and living out the kingdom of God here on earth is taxing and it's troubling and it can be quite inconvenient. John 16, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus hung out with lepers and the crippled and the sick, people that he should not have been touching, people that he should not have been hanging out with because he came in love. The established order with all of its boundaries and sensitivities was pointing their finger at him and saying that he's the one who did not belong. But the kingdom of God came and was this, I don't mean this as a pejorative. This is part of why I was nervous about this sermon because it, the kingdom of God is infesting the world. It's, it is progressing. It's getting bigger. It's permeating our faults. It's taking everything. Jesus was, every miracle he did, everything that he taught was taking something that was bent, distorted, and he was bending it back. But being bent back can hurt. It's not an easy process. And that's why I think that this garden scene here with the mustard in the middle of it seems a little chaotic. Because as good as the kingdom of God is, can it not be a little bit chaotic? As, do, do you hear that? It's good. It's the best. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. Repent of your sins. Put your trust and hope in him. You have eternal life and you every day grow more and more and more in the likeness of him. But Galatians 5.17 still says that the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit are in opposition to one another. And are we not in opposition to the world? It's good. It's the best. It's perfect. It's pleasing. And here on earth, it's gonna be tough. And Jesus, Jesus is teaching us that. 
And we've seen, we've, we've, we've seen the repercussions, we've seen persecutions, we've seen failures in the church, we've seen sin in the church. It is true. The gospel came and the Bible says that the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks and it's a stumbling block to the Jews, but at the exact same time, Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So it makes sense that we feel a little out of place here. Feel it makes sense that there's some chaos in our garden. The, the kingdom of God is growing, and that is the best possible news, but it does feel out of place because, because we're in this sinful world. And, 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 so, and so finally, as best as, as best as I can say it, that's it. The kingdom of God is good, and it is spreading in a world that does not like it, and we know that's true. It's spreading in a world that is opposed to the name of Jesus. And if you're a Christian this morning and live in Portland, you know how that feels. It feels a little out of place. It feels a little uncomfortable. But I think that, I believe that that's what Jesus is teaching here. Is it a positive? Is it a negative? Well, yes and no. It is a great positive, but it is tough. It is hard. This world is not our home. And I don't, and I don't buy, so, in this, so the, the, last, the last few points here uh, are, are more mechanical than anything else. I want to talk about the birds, and I want to talk about the leaven. The, the birds, uh, you know, valid point. We don't want to mess with our metaphors. If the birds are evil in verse 19, they're evil in verse 32. All right, I, I get that. But, but I actually, I, I don't agree. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's true. I don't think that once something represents evil or good, it always represents evil or good. And the reason for that is one of the most common depictions or images of evil in the Bible is the serpent. Is the serpent not always evil? Satan's a serpent in Genesis 1, and then throughout Scripture, the serpent is always a sign or an image of evil, right? But we come to Numbers 21, and we find something really interesting. Israel, in their wilderness wandering, is rebelling against Father God, and he sends a plague of serpents as punishment, and people are bitten and they are killed. But in his mercy, he tells Moses, Yahweh says to Moses, construct an iron serpent or a bronze serpent and put it up on a stick, up high on a pole, and anyone that is bitten and sees it will live. And people are like, yeah, Ian, but you're dumb, and that's Old Testament, nobody pays attention to the Old Testament. Well, Jesus himself in John chapter 3, when he's speaking to Nicodemus, in verse 14, says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That serpent in the wilderness was a representation of Jesus himself. So do I agree that the serpent is usually an image of evil? Yes. Is it always? No. It's not. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus sends his disciples out. He, <clears throat> he says, I'm sending you out as wolves among sheep, so be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. So I, I respectfully, I just don't agree. I, are are, are the, the birds evil in verse 19? Absolutely. Jesus says it. Can't be more clear than that. I bow to that. I think he's making a different point in verse 32. I think he's saying something else. I think that what's happening here is the first two parables, there's going to be wheat among the tares. There's going to be a lot of seed that gets thrown out and nothing comes of it. But the kingdom is still growing. Do not lose heart. Why endure when the wheat and the tares grow together? Because the kingdom is growing. 
The kingdom of God is growing. Jesus is not weak. Jesus is not soft. He is powerful. He is the God of the universe. And he may not be working on our timeline. He may not be working as quickly or in ways that we would prefer him to, but we must trust him. He is working. He is spreading the kingdom like leaven. Again, I hate to make this point, but I have to because it just feels so mechanical. But we have, to, we have to get our minds wrapped around this to understand how to read Scripture sent with, with a sensitivity. Leaven is seen as evil. Jesus warns his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Paul warns us that a little leaven leavens the whole lump and that that leaven is malice and wickedness in 1 Corinthians 5.8. But I don't believe that the leaven, again, is inherently evil. Well, it's forbidden in the Feast of Passover. You can't have any leaven in your house, even. And I say, yeah, I know, I know. But did you know that in Leviticus 23, the Feast of Pentecost, Yahweh commands that leaven or yeast be in the bread. So again, I do not just lay down and say leaven's always evil. I don't believe that that's true. I think that we have to approach God's word without those sort of assumptions. We have to approach God's word with what God's saying to us through the power of his spirit. God the spirit wrote this book, so let's take a little bit of time to not just hear what somebody else says, including me. Go home and investigate this stuff. Check it out. I, I did that. I was like, Levin's always bad. Okay, so I guess, huh, I'm gonna have to figure out how to preach that on it. I don't know, I guess... The, but, the, but it says the kingdom is like leaven. Well, the thing that's always true about leaven is that it's, it's not inherently evil, but it's used as an image. It's used as a type to describe something that spreads. Now, there's wicked and there's malice and there's hypocrisy. And there's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like leaven that was hidden inside of the lump and it grew until all was leavened. The thing that the wickedness and the malice and the hypocrisy in the kingdom have in common is not that one is good or bad, but that they all grow. Hypocrisy will grow in the kingdom of God here on earth. Hypocrisy will grow in the church if we let it. Sexual immorality and hypocrisy will grow in the church. We know that it's true. But the kingdom of God in its right, holy, and perfect mission also will grow. And this is why we have every reason to hope in Jesus, because the Bible tells us that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Romans 5.20 says that where sin abounds, will, 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 sin, will sin grow? Will sin abound? Paul says yes. But where it abounds, grace abounds the more. Do not use this as an excuse to sin. I'm gonna go ahead and just rip this guy off because then I'll have grace and I'll be forgiven. That's the wrong attitude, it's the wrong heart. That's not, what is being, that's not what's being taught here, but that Jesus' grace and his love and his mercy and his kindness is just like him, it's infinite. And where there is sin, there is more grace because Jesus is bigger than you, he is bigger than your sin. And this, these, these parables, if I had to summarize what this means, it means that being a Christian is gonna be difficult in this life. It feels like a mustard seed in a garden, a mustard plant that kind of feels out of place. And yes, we are. This is not our home. Peter writes and tells us that we are sojourners here. But God's kingdom is growing and growing and growing. And like leaven, eventually the whole lump will be leavened. God's kingdom will win. Jesus Christ will come back and take us with him. 
To be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. We can trust Jesus far more than I, than I think that we believe that we can. I think that we can trust Jesus far more than we even dare believe. His kingdom is growing. Do you believe that? He is coming back. Do you believe that? Persecution and hardship and trial and tribulation are guaranteed to come, but friends, do not lose heart in Jesus. Do not lose faith in Jesus. His kingdom is growing. It might seem hidden in this giant lump of dough, but it is coming out. It is growing. It is not evil. It is not bad. It's beautiful. It's perfect. And it's good. Psalm 72, verse 8 says, The Lord will rule from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. The kingdom of God is like this little mustard seed. Jesus was born in a small little town. He died young after three years of public ministry. But he is God in the flesh, and his kingdom is growing, and that doesn't make sense to us. And that's all the more reason why we should believe in him, because history speaks loudly. Archaeology backs this up. Jesus came he was killed. He rose from the dead three days later. He is God in the flesh. He never sinned in word, thought, or deed. He achieved perfect righteousness because he is perfect. He showed us what the kingdom is like, and he makes us alive all over again. New hearts, new convictions, new affections, Christ-like affections. He gives us that life that is overqualified for death. And we as the church go the world over and every tongue, every tribe, and every nation is hearing the gospel because the kingdom of God is growing because Jesus is that good. Amen? Amen. Bow your heads with me as we close out. Jesus, oh, I pray that I did some justice to this parable today. Any place where I have failed or fallen short, Lord, minister to your people. Drive them to the scriptures. Call them to your word. May they seek this out on their own in the privacy of their homes and communities and Bible studies and whatever else it is, Lord. You are good. You came humble, but you did not, come, you did not really come weak. And the world is benefiting people from all over the planet for thousands and thousands and thousands of years have been able to rest in the hope that they have in you, rest in the work that you accomplished. There is nothing for us to do but to repent and believe. Lord, thank you for doing everything for us. Thank you for the gift of your righteousness. And may we be a people who spread the gospel. May we be a people who assist in the kingdom going forward. And we thank you that you are patient with our downfalls and our shortcomings and our inconsistencies. And that even as, as fallible and inconsistent as, as we are, your arm is not short and the kingdom will go forth because it is really you that's working in the midst. I pray, Lord, for hearts here this morning that are unconverted. Lord, that you would convict them, that you would spread the kingdom of God in their very souls this, this very moment. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for working through broken human beings. It is in your name that we trust. It is in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Hey, friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, 
We'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheofhopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.